Stand with me as we rise together to read this morning's sermon text. You turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. I do hope you have a Bible with you. It's always good to have one in front of you as we study it together that you might evaluate the words that are before us. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can grab a chairback Bible that should be nearby you, maybe even in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 989. Lord willing, this is the second to last sermon that has occupied our attention in these letters to the church at Thessalonica. As Lord willing, next week, our associate pastor, Mark Trigstead, will take all of chapter 3 and conclude our study. But what we want to look at today is verse 13 through 17 of chapter 2. And so let me just read uh, those verses for us and, and then pray for our study and we'll begin. So listen as God speaks to you now through his perfect word. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel, that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to speak your truth to us. That even in the reading of this word, you have already spoken to us. The truth that demands our attention. The truth that calls for our affection. So we pray that you would send the Spirit into our hearts, that you might summon our obedience, that you might summon our repentance, that you might summon us to faith. So let us hear with earnestness. Let us listen with diligence. Help me to preach as you say I must. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the study of 20th century American church history, The year of our Lord, 1976, is a rather interesting one, not least of which is because it was in that year that Newsweek magazine called that year the year of the evangelical, because after all of the crises and the turmoil and the confrontations that belonged to the previous decade in the 1960s, many religious leaders in the land were burgeoning with hope and booming with optimism over the prospect of Christianity and America. And perhaps few things underscore that degree of hope, uh, that degree of looking to the future with no fear and with no trepidation. And it was around that time that what we now term the uh, megachurch movement truly began, that you could find these massive churches beginning to be built on nearly every block in American suburbs. Because American religious leakers were thinking that now we're going into this pronounced time period of unique influence and perhaps even expansion of the gospel and its power and effect in our country. And so on every corner, it seemed like you found a new church being built, often quite large churches, thinking that bigger was possible, that bigger was better. But it's true that not every leader in America at that time in 1976 was looking to the future with 
unusual optimism and hope. Some actually saw the seeds for an increasingly rising and dominant secularism that was soon going to swallow up Christianity in America. And one such man was this popular apologist and thinker named Francis Schaeffer. Some of you might know his name. He was a man that uh, seemed that he had come down from the Swiss Alps in a previous century. Such was his dress. And it was in 1976 that he published what's probably his still best-known and most beloved book. It was a book that sought to answer the trials and troubles of the times. It was a book's title that simply asked the question, How then shall we live? And our text today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is Paul's answer to that very question for this young church at Thessalonica. How then shall they live in light of what he's just said? So if you weren't with us last week, what we saw last week is that the Apostle Paul was unveiling. He was teaching about the coming apostasy, the rebellion that was going to arrive with this man of sin that was going to be summoned from Satan at the end of the age that would precede the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from even the beginning of chapter 2 that this false teaching, this error had crept into Thessalonica. It was something that was shaking. It was something that was surprising the church there, causing them to wonder, maybe we've missed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a Paul, after telling them, no, you haven't missed the coming, here's what must happen before that day of the Lord truly arrives, he now turns his attention to how then they should live in light of that truth. You don't have to be a savvy student of our context and culture to recognize that we, like the church there at Thessalonica, live in an age where Satan is working to deceive, Satan is working to delude, he's working to oppose the church to keep all those who are perishing to not believe the truth. So then, likewise for us, it's a question, how should we live in light of Satan's schemes, in light of his opposition and affliction? And what you're going to see is that Paul's answer to the Thessalonians and to us is altogether simple. He simply says, stand firm. And that's the theme that we have for us today. Stand firm in God. I want to show you that in a few different ways. But you know, when life gets tough, when situations get rough, that everyone responds differently. That maybe you faced adversity and affliction recently, and I wonder if actually the ordinary impulse of your heart was to find the anxiety meteor of your soul just accelerate to such a degree that you almost couldn't continue to live faithfully, such was your panic and your fear. You know, students, if you haven't learned it yet, we'll talk about this later on in our text today, at some point in your life, it's going to get hard. And where are you going to find relief? Where are you finding strength to help you stand firm? Because recognize that every single person has an innate thing to which they gravitate towards to help them stand firm, to help them find retreat from the affliction, For some people, it's something as simple as food. For some people, it's entertainment, it's sports, it's politics, it's social media, it's friends, it's some other relationship. Our text is going to tell you today that you find a reason to stand firm in God. First, what we're going to notice in verse 13 and 14, the text calls us to stand firm from God's work. Then verse 15, stand firm in God's truth. Finally, in the prayer of 16 and 17, stand firm by God's Grace. Stand firm 
from God's work, first of all, look again at verse 13. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So you see that simple conjunction beginning the verse there, but, tells us Paul's making some sort of contrast in comparison to what came before. So what did he just say? Well, if you glance up to verses 10, 11, and 12, you know that he was focusing his attention on unbelievers, those who refused to love the truth and so be saved, that they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They had succumbed to Satan's deception. God was deluding them unto their condemnation. And Paul says, but I have better hopes for you, young church in Thessalonica, that you can stand confident, that you can stand secure, and so I give thanks to God for you. And if you haven't been with us in recent weeks and months, as we've been slowly but surely going through Paul's two letters to this church at Thessalonica, well, what you need to know is that the Apostle Paul, and I mean this reverently, can be called impulsive. Because if you ever read his letters, what you find him impulsively doing is giving thanks for what God has done in a local church. It seems like you can't get too many paragraphs into any one of his letters before he's going to burst out with some degree of praise and thanksgiving. If you just glance back a few paragraphs before to the beginning of chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see almost identical language to the first verse in our text today where he says, but always, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. And he says, but, verse 13 of chapter 2, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. I wonder if you have that kind of sanctified impulse to thank God. If you have eyes to see, yes, in the midst of hardship and affliction, Satan's schemes so visibly warring against the church, if you can actually find yourself spontaneously, impulsively, saying, God, I thank you for what you're doing here. You have eyes to see the Lord's mercy and grace at work. You know, recently, certain quarters of conservative churches in America have had a reason to consider uh, the nature of plagiarism in the pulpit. And students, maybe even as this year's school year semester uh, began, you had teachers warning you against the error of, of plagiarism. And kids, I don't know if you know what plagiarism is. It's simply taking something from someone else and not giving them credit is basically what it means. And I want you to know that even in the Christian life, we can also fall into spiritual plagiarism, if thanklessness runs rampant in our life, that we're not giving God the credit that he alone is due for what he's doing in us and through us, in you and through you, here in this church, in us and through us, that having a heart of gratitude and thankfulness is always recognizing, yes, God deserves the credit for all the good that has come into my life, for all the blessings that he has poured out upon us, for to not always be giving thanks, one runs the risk of falling into spiritual plagiarism, taking the credit, not giving it to where it's due. So what you'll see then in verse 13 through 14, Paul has six reasons why he's thankful. And let's say a brief word about each one of these. First, God loves them. You see verse 13 continues, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers, beloved by the Lord. Sometimes, isn't it true that a spouse can go to his wife or she can go to her husband and ask the question, do you love me? Or perhaps children can grow up and then later in adulthood they confess, mom and dad never said they loved me. But that's not true about life in Jesus Christ. God's always reminding his people that 
he loves them. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he's always reminding you that he loves you. Every time you open his word and read it, you hear of his love towards you in Jesus Christ. Every time you gather with God's people on the Lord's day, through his word and spirit, he says, I love you. Every time you come to the Lord's table to take of the Lord's supper, with tangible things you can hold, you can taste, and you can feel, he's saying, as real as this is. So real is my love for you. And oftentimes in the New Testament, God's love is connected with his sovereign choice of his people, which is why he thanks God, Paul does, not just that God loves them, but that God has chosen them. You see, verse 13 continues, we ought always to give thanks to God for you because God chose you. It's this rich doctrine in the New Testament. You'll find in the Old Testament too, of course, God's election, his sovereign selection of his people. And students, you need to realize that this truth of God's sovereign choice of who comes into his family. That choice isn't like the kind of choice you might make on a schoolyard playground during recess when a captain stands there looking over the students as they're getting ready to play a sport and says, well, according to this person's skill, I'm going to choose them for my team. According to this person's height, they belong on my basketball team. Or that person just looks right, so they might as well be on my team as well. God doesn't do that. That's not because of anything you've done. It's not because of anything you are doing or will do that he chooses anyone. That's simply, God's word says, according to his own purpose and grace, that he loves his people. He has chosen his people. You see, also, he's saved his people because he chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And kids, I do hope that as you have grown up in the church, that you understand what this word saved means. I actually hope that you've grown up in the church, children, that you've heard the word salvation often and understood what it means to come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But if a friend was to come to you this week, perhaps even in the church, and say, well, hey, Pastor Sohn said something about salvation. What does that mean? Well, what you need to know in the original context of 2 Thessalonians, uh, there was a simple connotation to this word, saved. It, it might be easy to understand it if you watched a baseball game yesterday. You saw an umpire do this. And what does that mean? Safe. Salvation just means safety. But safe from what? Safe from the wrath that your sins deserve. Safe from God's vengeance that your transgressions require. A salvation, a safety that's found only in Jesus Christ. He's chosen you as the first fruits, the text says, to be saved. Uh, you might have a translation in front of you that renders that language of first fruits as he's chosen you from the beginning to be saved. And there are other texts that do say that. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose you from the foundation of the world. I actually think this language of first fruits is, is correct. It's calling us to understand this Old Testament sacrificial system where you would take a portion of your harvest, these first fruits, and you would offer it to the Lord as a pleasing sacrifice to him. And that pleasing sacrifice would consecrate the rest of the harvest. And that idea of consecration surely is right because Paul continues his thanksgiving now, fourthly saying he's thankful because God sanctified them. That he's saved them, the text says, verse 13 continues, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification in the New Testament can mean one of two things. More often than not, it refers to something that we might call progressive sanctification. 
this slow but sure work of God in us and through us by His Word and Spirit to make us become more and more like Jesus Christ. But there are other times the New Testament uses the very same word, which just means set apart, consecrated, made holy, in not a progressive sense, but a definitive sense. That you are sanctified, you are set apart, you have been made holy. And that's the sense that this verse mentions here in verse 13, that through the effectual calling of the Spirit, a Spirit worked faith into the hearts of the Thessalonians so that they believed the truth, that they were set apart according to God's sovereign choice in love of His people. He's thankful, fifthly, God didn't just sanctify them, save them, choose them, love them. It says He called them. You see verse 14? To this, He calls you through our gospel. I've been reading a book with some students this semester that's something of a classic in our circles. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it tries to talk about these truths in Scripture that sometimes feel at odds with one another. How is it that God can be completely, totally, and utterly sovereign over salvation and yet command us to go share the good news? Completely, totally, and utterly sovereign over salvation and command us to respond to the news. But I want you to see even how our text at the end of verse 13 and 14 doesn't think this is a problem. The Spirit sanctified you and you believed the truth. That God's sovereign choice, His loving selection of His people came through the calling of the gospel. This very presentation and proclamation of Jesus Christ that God uses to woo and call His people to Himself. Just as a father might whistle out on the front yard to summon his children to come home. That's through the preaching of the gospel that your heavenly father whistles to call forth his children to come to their heavenly home. But the end isn't done until you get to the final part of verse 14. He's thankful, sixthly, that God will glorify them. You see, the purpose is so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Language, therefore, obtain. It almost has this picture of just wrapping your arms entirely around something, that you possess it, that you share it. And what we entirely get at the end of God's work in us and, and through us is Christ's glory. That's why Ephesians chapter 4 can say, He chose you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless before Him, completely, utterly, perfectly transformed into Christ's image, knowing that righteousness reflecting His glory in all of its beauty and brilliance. Why then? Is Paul confident? Why then is Paul certain that it's going to go differently with these saints? That they're not going to be deceived and deluded by Satan? Well, he's calling them, isn't he, to stand firm in God's work, to be thankful for God's work in the church. And now in verse 15, he calls them to stand firm in God's truth. It was in 1987 that a pilot named Henry Dempsey was flying his 15-passenger plane from Lewiston, Maine to Boston, Massachusetts. And somewhere along the way in the flight, he heard something of a bang in the back of the plane. And so he handed over the controls to his co-pilot and began to walk down the aisle to the back of the plane. And as he came to the back of the plane, it hit some sudden spot of, of turbulence. And he was thrown against the back door of the plane that, upon his impact, automatically opened. And so out Dempsey went into the air some 4,000 feet above. And he latched on at the last second we're told, to this rail, and hung on, understandably, for dear life. Well, his co-pilot thought he had fallen out of the plane. Quickly, he 
discern where the nearest airport was. So we've got to land this plane. And when they landed, what they found was Henry Dempsey, still alive, his face 12 inches from the ground. With such an iron grip was he holding that rail that they had to pry his hand open. And that degree of holding fast is what Paul wants to be true of God's people. Now notice in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold. Before you see what we're supposed to stand firm and hold to, I want you to notice how in the sweep of what he's just said in verse 13 and 14, it may be somewhat surprising. Actually, it should be somewhat surprising, this exhortation to stand firm and to hold. Because it's as though he said, look at all this wonderful sovereign work of God in you and through you. So, therefore, Thessalonians, what you might expect when you face opposition, rest in his strength. When you face adversity and affliction, find relief in his power. But he doesn't say that. He could have said that because it's totally true. But he says, no, because of God's work in you, stand ever firmer. Hold fast ever stronger. To what? You see, verse 15 ends, to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So kids, what he's saying there is simply stand firm and hold to God's word. The truth that has given us these apostolic teachings that were spoken, these apostolic teachings written down in letters like the one before us. As students, it's probably important for you to recognize that even the, the tense of those verbs we could render as keep on standing firm, keep on holding fast to God's word. Because what you need to know is sometimes when Satan strikes against the church, he does so in this momentary blistering onslaught. It's like this, this sudden force of a hurricane arrives on your soul. But more often than not, I think what Satan tends to do is slowly but surely, with all subtlety, undermine your affection for Jesus Christ and ever pull you more deeply into unrighteousness and unbelief. So you have to always be standing firm, always be holding fast to God's word. I wonder those of you who are parents, if you might be able to say yes in, in this home the ordinary flow of a day and week in, in this home shows that we stand firm and hold fast to God's truth. I do trust that it can be said to be true of this church, that when we gather on the Lord's Day, it's manifestly true, that we're attempting, striving in the Spirit's strength to stand firm and hold fast to God's truth. You'll see, thirdly, he calls the church, calls us to stand firm by God's grace. As Paul's prone to do, he, he prays. He prays for the people there at Thessalonica, I wonder how you prayed for the church here at Redeemer this week, if you're a member of this congregation. I wonder if you prayed for the church here at Redeemer this week. Now notice if you can see the aim and the essential center of his prayer, verse 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work in word. Don't race too quickly by the initial phrases of verse 16. Uh, once again, by placing the Lord Jesus Christ right next to God our Father, it's summoning us to recognize the divine nature uh, of Jesus Christ. But one commentator would say it's altogether stunning that the Lord Jesus Christ is listed first, because Paul normally lists him second. That's not to say that there's any priority here between the Father and the Son, but it's to underscore the divine coessential nature between the Father and the Son, that we might likewise pray for strength from God the Father and the Son himself. 
And what do God's people need but to know his love, his eternal comfort, and his good hope through grace? It's being comforted and established in these that you'll be able to stand firm, you'll be able to hold fast, you'll be able to walk in every good work and word. So understand then, if you might be in a place in your life today where you've grown genuinely weary, understandably weary of doing good, what do you need to know to persevere in doing good? You need to know God's eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Establish your heart in them that you might continue. Perhaps even tomorrow morning, you know, as surely as that alarm clock wakes you up, so sure will you be confronted with something discouraging. How much you go about the work the Lord summoned you to tomorrow. I'll recognize that he's already shown you his love and given you good hope through grace, eternal comfort. Establish your heart in them. And I would encourage many of you to recognize that you might have to do the best work today of going home to self-examine yourself on this point. I wonder the degree to which you are skilled in establishing God's people in comfort and good hope. Some of you need to recognize that you're much more skilled in robbing people of comfort and good hope. And that Christians in their ordinary life together, that impulse is, well, yes, sometimes we need to correct that can make people uncomfortable. Sometimes we need to express a concern that might momentarily take away hope. And yes, that's all good and necessary, but much more often than not, it's totally true. That we should be skilled in establishing one another in God's comfort and God's hope. That's ours through grace in Jesus Christ. So this is the call to God's people in the midst of affliction, in the midst of Satan's opposition. Stand firm. Stand firm from God's work. Stand firm in God's truth. Stand firm by God's grace. If you, ever, if you have ever seen the film version of Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander, you know, there's this scene when the HMS Surprise is suddenly attacked by a French warship. And this old sea dog, before he goes on the enemy's ship, he holds up two hands to this young midshipman across the way. Two hands on which are written two four-letter words, scratched into his knuckles with tattoo. One says, hold. The other says, fast. Because, of course, for... Old-time sailors, they knew the degree to which, in the face of a storm, you must hold fast to a rope, hold fast to a rudder, hold fast to a wheel, lest you collapse, lest you be overthrown. And that's the same encouragement, of course, that Paul's giving us in our text today. Not on our hands, children, but by the work of the Spirit on our hearts, scratching into our souls, hold fast. And to help you do that, what I want to do as we begin to close is let you notice two more things from this text for our work and labor and prayer to hold fast in Jesus Christ. Number one, I want you to see that hardship is inevitable. Hardship is inevitable. It's true that the Lord Jesus Christ has told us if we follow him, the world's going to hate us. The Apostle Paul has told us if we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. Things will inevitably get hard. I was driving around with the kids on Friday, and we were going to and fro from these errands, and we were uh, listening to this band that we enjoy 
listening to, and there's this song that was talking about God's perfect love, and I was singing along in the car as I'm prone to do, and so I sang a few lines along with uh, the song, I think it was the third verse, that simply says, I've seen love fail, I've been betrayed. And I sang that out loud, and one of the kids said, Dad, you've been betrayed before? And it's one of those sincere moments of childlike innocence where you as a parent tell them, well, my response was something like, well, the Lord gives you enough years. Trust me, you'll know what it means to experience a failure of love. You'll know what it means to be betrayed. But the good news is that God will never do it. He'll never fail you. He'll never betray you. But you'll know what it feels like to experience hardship. You'll know what it feels like to experience difficulty. One thing that perhaps you might be able to notice if you read through all of Paul's letters is one thing that's always constantly haunting the experience of that local congregation in the background is affliction. It's difficulty. It's hardship. It's opposition. It's division. Whatever it is striking the church, it's something that calls them to stand firm. So that's why if you go through all of Paul's letters, you hear this common refrain to the Romans, hold fast and be patient in tribulation. To the Corinthians, be steadfast, immovable. To the Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. To the Ephesians, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. To the Philippians, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. To the Colossians, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Of course, to the Thessalonians in our text today, stand firm and hold fast. The ubiquity of the command would not be there without the inevitability of hardship. But that's perhaps a bleak part of the meditation, but the positive part, of course, is the second point. It's not only that you want to see the hardships inevitable, it's that the means of grace, secondly, are reliable. We've said this before, actually, a number of times, if you've been with us in recent months through Thessalonians, particularly as we've emphasized the place of preaching in this congregation's experience. But it's worth emphasizing again because it's in the text again today. This church, it was small. This church didn't have any major resources. This church certainly didn't have lots of dollars in a bank. They didn't have a large building. They didn't have any, many people to send out to plant new churches. They didn't have visionary strategies that they would use to conquer the city of Thessalonica for Jesus Christ. They didn't even have experienced leaders Who knows what it means to lead a church through hardship? What they had, though, was God's Word. What they had, though, was prayer. What they thus had was all they needed in the fight. What they had thus was everything necessary to stand firm and to hold fast to Jesus Christ. So then whatever the affliction is that's facing you, the opposition is that's confronting you, The devil's deception that is striking against you, the call in Jesus Christ is to stand firm. And you do so, of course, from God's work, in God's truth, by God's grace. You do so with the word and prayer, knowing that it's there in those means of grace. that The Father puts his Son and his power into your soul. He who is the sure and steadfast anchor for the soul of God's people. If you stand firm in Jesus Christ, you can stand firm in the face of any of Satan's schemes. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would help us by your Spirit to stand firm, 
that in the midst of whatever it is that is confronting us, perhaps wanting to lead us astray from Jesus Christ, that we might be rooted and grounded in him, and so established in the faith, established in your comfort, established in good hope. And help us to share that comfort and hope this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.